The tallest building in San Francisco is a high-rise office tower called the Salesforce Tower. There's a picture of it there on the screen. It's the tallest building there in San Francisco, and it started out, like all skyscrapers do, as a great big hole in the ground. And the bigger the hole, usually the bigger the structure that's above it. At the bottom of this tower is a massive concrete slab that is 14 feet thick and covers over an acre. And the pouring of that slab is said to be one of the longest concrete pours in history. Now, I kind of appreciate that. I used to work for a concrete ready mix company up in Boone. And, you know, we thought it was a big deal if you were pouring 100 yards of concrete. This has 12,000 cubic yards of concrete in it. That number may not mean anything to you. But underneath that concrete is also this whole system of lattice of rebar. And the rebar, you can't really see it on the screen there. If you were looking at it online, you could see it pretty clearly. The rebar that's there is two and a half inches thick. So just imagine holding the end of a baseball bat, okay? So that's how big that rebar is. It took iron workers, it took eight of them, eight iron workers each lifted up those bars and put them in place, tie wrapped them together. So it took eight of them to pick up these bars. The bars are 45 feet long. So this is the whole point is that this is a massive foundation that is supported from the very ground up. And I mean, 1300 concrete trucks just continuously went back and forth and back and forth over 18 hours. And they poured all this concrete in one pour. It's 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 incredible to, to think of all that concrete going into this hole in the ground. That building, like all big buildings, has a solid foundation under it. Now, one day we all know that the whole coast of California is just going to fall off in the ocean, right? So, I mean, that's just going to fall off. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, well, that will be no great loss. But the foundation will go with it, okay, when that happens. It will just crack off and fall into the Pacific Ocean, they say. Underneath where I'm standing, some of you might remember, or some of you may have seen pictures of of me and JT back in the day, There's a, there is literally a copy of God's Word buried in the concrete slab that's right here below where the pulpit stands, where this table stands. And the decision was made back when we started building our addition here, when we started building this building, that we wanted something to remind ourselves of our foundation. And... You know, a hundred years from now, if the Lord doesn't come back before then, they may not remember that it's there if this building is still here. But it's there, and it's there as a reminder for, for me and for others that, okay, we, we are built upon something. We are called to stand upon something. We are to be a people whose foundation is built on the Word. So our statement of faith in our church and I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I want us just to read it together, okay? It's, it's our church's statement of faith, but it comes from the, the Baptist faith and message. It's our doctrinal statement. So, Newman, pull that up. Um, yeah, go to the next one. There you go. Um, and let's just, let's just read it together, okay? If you can see that small print up there, all right? Oh, some of you can't see. Oh. And Newman's going just like this. Okay. 
You know, we are taking up an offering to fix this. Just, just as by way of a visual reminder, the foundation under me is solid. The cameras over me need to be replaced. So just, just we'll throw that in. You couldn't have bought a better commercial. You couldn't have bought a better commercial than that. All right, just yeah, just leave it there, Newman. Forget it. Okay. Nah, I don't see it. Now you see it. Now you don't. Let's just forget it. Okay. I'll read it. This is why I don't use PowerPoint. It's a distraction. It's a distraction, okay? I'll read you our statement of faith. Listen to it. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, you've heard that as you went through our membership class. You can read that on our website or pull it up on the SBC website. Um, it's important for us to know and understand what we believe. Because what we believe determines what we value. And what we value determines how we live. And so, it's foundational. The Bible is foundational to who we are as believers, who we are as a church, who we are as, as the bride of Christ. And so, that doctrinal statement encapsulates in a long paragraph what we see in our text for today. It's really what we've seen all the way through Psalm 119. And it's summarized today, I think, most clearly in the two ending verses of our stanzas, okay? In, at, at the end of the, the cough section of the stanza, it says in verse 152, Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. So let that word, you founded them forever. And then down in verse 160, the sum of your word, and the sum there, the word there means like the head or the, the main point, or the, obviously we would think of sum as a mathematical term, the, how it all, in the end what you have together is this. So the main point, the summary, the primary focus, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So we want to think a minute. I mentioned last week, today's message is going to be a little more doctrinal maybe than, than most. But we're going to end with an application of it or with some applications of it. But when we think about the Word of God being, as it says here, eternal, truth, every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We're going to think a minute about this doctrinal foundation that's under us, that the word is, is inspired. What does it mean when we say the word is inspired? That the word is authoritative. What do we mean when we say the Bible is our authority? What do we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant? And what does it mean that God's word is eternal? Now, we could look at other, other doctrinal characteristics of the scriptures, but I'm focusing on those four because I think that's where our text points us today. 
Those ideas that, that God's word is inspired, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, and it's eternal. And what difference does that make to us that it is those things? And that's, that's what we're going to think about for just a second. So, so the word is inspired. Now, we use inspired in a lot of different ways. Okay? We can say that the paintings of Michelangelo on the, on the walls and the ceiling of the, of the Sistine Chapel are inspired. We've, we've heard it said that an athlete who really just, just knocks it out of the park, maybe literally, is, is playing an inspired game. We've heard that. Artists and dancers can, can do inspired, inspired dances. We've heard that. A politician can give an inspired speech. But, but when we say that the word is inspired, when we say that what we have in this book is inspired, what do we mean by that? Well, constantly through Psalm 119, in fact, I counted it up this morning, in 176 verses of Psalm 119, at least 170 times, the word your is used. Your word, your truth, your precepts, your statutes, your law, your testimonies. Over and over and over and over, it's, this, it's telling us that this is God's word, God's testimonies, God's precepts, God's rules, God's law, 170 plus times in 176 verses. So the word is inspired to say that when this word comes to us, it comes to us in a unique way, in a unique way that that is led and guided by God. The word inspiration comes from most most of our theological understanding of it comes from a term that Timothy got when he received a letter from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God. I exhale and air comes from my lungs out into the room. All right? We're distanced here, so you're okay. All right? The word is breathed out. By God, the Bible tells us, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. In other words, the word of God did not originate with men. Now, we'll see in a second what what that means, but it originated with God inspired. Another word that's, I think, helpful to understand that is a word that Peter uses. If you want to just write this note, write this reference down or turn to it in in first Peter, excuse me, in second Peter. Peter says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the idea there, the word is used in Acts to describe what happened when a ship was carried along by a storm. So men were moved along by the Holy Spirit to write God's word in human language. God's word comes in human words. And that's what we mean when we say inspired. All the words in Scripture are God's words. And there's debate over what that means, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to get into it. Um, I would encourage you to do some research. I'll post you some links that I think could be helpful in that. But what the authors of the Bible, with all their different personalities, with all their different context, with all their different gifts and callings, 
were moved by the Spirit of God to write down and record the words of God in human form. Some have said, and I think it's true, we just have to be careful with it, that it's a joint venture between God and men. Because it is God's Word through these men and women that we have recorded here. And so it is inspired. And Peter says that this wasn't produced by the will of men. It came from God. God is speaking to us, revealing himself to us. That's what we mean when we say inspired. Some, some would use the word verbal plenary inspiration. That means the very words themselves came from God through men. So it's inspired. The second thing I want us to think about is the idea that it's authoritative. Again, your, your, your word, your world, your statutes, your law, your truth. 170 plus times in 176 verses. It is authoritative, meaning all the words are God's words. And to disbelieve or disobey the word is to disbelieve or disobey God. It's that simple. When we say authoritative, we are saying that it is our foundational authority. We judge truth. We judge beauty. We judge life. We judge the way. We judge everything we see, if we do it well, through the word. It is our authority to judge everything else. I had a, I had a, I remember back 30 years ago, it wasn't long after I got here, I had a discussion with a gentleman who was attending Westwood. And our debate, and it was a debate, um, it was a really pretty, pretty short debate. I just didn't, I didn't go very far with it because I made my point and I was done. Um, you know, I had a big old stack of books. And often bring that big old stack of books to church with him. And slap them down on the table during Sunday school and begin to use what was written in those books to make judgments or make impressions or to make points about the Bible. And, and my point was simple. You've got it backwards. All of those books are not used to tell us whether or not this Bible is true, whether or not we can trust it. This Bible tells you whether or not all those books are worth the paper that they're printed on. And so that was the discussion that we went across because the word is authoritative because it is God's word. And, and we look no further than to Jesus himself, because when Jesus was confronted by his adversaries, indeed, when he was confronted by Satan himself, he continually pointed out that the word of God is the word of God. It is written, he said. And so what Moses said is what God said. What God said is what Moses said. What God said is what Jeremiah and Isaiah said. And what Jeremiah and Isaiah said is what God said, because it's God's word. That was Jesus's point throughout his whole ministry. And he had this for him. It is written meant it, God has said it. It's my authority. That's who I'm resting in. And so as followers of Christ, we should have that same attitude toward the Bible that he did. It is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. And so even in our authority-averse culture, no one will tell me what to do. No one will give me that command. That's, that's the culture that we live in, right? But if we're saying, as we do, almost as a cliché, that we are people of the book, then that distinguishes us 
from those who would say, I have no authority, because we do have an authority. And that authority has given us his word. So that word comes to us inspired, breathed out by God. It comes to us as God's word. And to disbelieve and disobey that is to disbelieve and disobey God. Well, how can we know we can trust it? How do we know that? And that's where the word inerrant comes in. And the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy is one that's been adopted by most conservative evangelical Christians in the United States, indeed around the world. And, And that statement says that inerrant, when we say that the word is without error, when we say it is inerrant, we say that it is, quote, without fault or error in all that it teaches in matters of history and science as well as faith. Now, to say that something to say that the word is inerrant allows for different types of speech in the Bible. OK, for hyperbole, for allegory, for poetry. OK, it allows for that. It allows for us to understand that there were colloquial expressions, you know, figures of speech that are used. And to say that the word is without error allows for those. We understand that as we say that the word is without error. But the scripture is clear. Paul said in that, well, in Titus, listen to what it says in the very first verses of the book of Titus. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God... Who never lies, promised before the ages begin. Unlying God is literally how the Greek says there. So God is the unlying God. He cannot lie. So his word is is without error. His word is truth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6 that we hold on to two unchangeable things, he says, in which it is impossible for God to lie. So when we come across a place or a passage or a concept in Scripture that would cause us to say, well, that can't be true. No, we need to pray and trust and see how the Holy Spirit will work us through that so that we can understand that God's word is true and it will not contradict itself. God will not say one thing in one place and something else in another. And I know the challenges sometimes that that brings to us. Challenges sometimes in interpretation. Challenges sometimes in just, golly, I wish that weren't there. Y'all don't like it. Somebody ought to amen that because I know I'm not the only one that comes across the passage and goes, oh, man. It's, It's without error. If you're unfamiliar with the history of the Southern Baptist Convention... When you hear the word, the conservative resurgence, it may not mean a lot to you. Some of us who have been around long enough um, understand that it's a huge deal because the conservative resurgence that took place in the Southern Baptist Convention over the course of 20 years or so, um, starting, I don't know, 40 or 50 years ago, was around this idea that the word is inerrant. Because there were Southern Baptist seminaries who did not hold to the inerrancy of the word. And so all that was being taught and all those men and women who graduated from those seminaries were being taught something other than the inerrancy of the word. And that began to infiltrate itself into the small churches and the big churches and the communities and the cities of our state and of our country. And before long... The whole direction 
of the Southern Baptist Convention was turning toward a more liberal, um, less solid understanding of the Scripture. It made a big difference. It was a huge deal. And, and the conservative resurgence was led by a group of believers who came together and said no. And one of those who stood at the center of that was Adrian Rogers. And one of the reasons that Adrian Rogers' sermons and preaching are still so loved by people is because of who he was when it came to his understanding of the word. He served on a peace committee that was put together during the, during the midst of the worst part of the resurgence. It was, it was literally a theological war going on within the Southern Baptist Convention. And a peace committee was formed, and, and Adrian Rogers was asked to serve on that committee. And, and it's told, it's recorded in a couple of histories about the resurgence that other members were charged with how they could keep the liberals and the conservatives together on these key theological doctrines. Well, basically, Adrian said, it ain't happening. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's my, you know, that's, that's kind of me putting words into his mouth. But here's what happened. At one of the breaks in one of the peace committee meetings, Adrian Rogers was approached by a lawyer who was representing the opposing sides. And, he's, and, and this lawyer came to him and just said, Adrian, if you don't compromise, we'll never be able to get together. And Adrian, Adrian's wife wrote this in a, in a book. She, she wrote, Adrian replied, I'm willing to compromise about many things, but not the word of God. So far as getting together is concerned, we don't have to get together. So far as the Southern Baptist Convention Continuing as it is, it does not have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. I don't have to be loved. I don't even have to live. But I will not compromise the word of God. And so that was, that was his position. And that was the position that was adopted by the conservatives who then, I believe, just under the gracious, kind hand of God, were able to begin to redirect that battleship. It's a slow turn. But they, they turned it in, in the right direction. Now, that battle and that struggle continues today. Even in conservative churches, we have to continue to be sure we're reorienting ourselves, moving in the direction that we need to move. And we're not just doing it with our words. So the doctrine of inerrancy is important. There's a long list of implications about what would happen if you deny that. I mean, just think about it for just a second. If you deny the inerrancy of the word, you're denying the truthfulness of God. If you're denying that, that the truthfulness of God, then you're saying that God could be a liar. And if you're saying that one part of this Bible, even a small part of it, can't be believed, then where do you stop in determining what can be trusted? If that part's not right, then how do you know deep in your heart that that other part is right? I mean, I'm going to believe that and hold to that. And I can't imagine life without that, but eh, that other's not. You just can't go down that path. There's, there's, no, there's no place to stop in that. And, and, and I love what one writer said. Lack of belief in inerrancy opens the door to denying the major doctrines of the faith. And one of the first doctrines to be rejected is salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And he says, while this may not happen with every person who rejects an inerrant scripture, it's the logical result of denying inerrancy. If the Bible says Jesus is the only way, but we don't necessarily hold to the truthfulness of the Bible, then maybe that's up for debate. 
No, it, it can't be. It can't be. Our God is an unlying, truth-telling God, and he's given us that truth in his word. Fourthly, the word is eternal. And, and I've struggled with, um, this is just one of those questions. Maybe you've never thought about it, but I've, I've, all week I've kind of thought about this. Maybe a better word there than eternal would be timeless. But yet, over and over and over, we see in Psalm 119 and throughout the scriptures that God's word is forever, that it is eternal. Now, the question you and I can bat back and forth, I asked Susan, you think there, is, are we going to need the Bible? Are we going to have the Bible in heaven? I never really thought about that, you know. Um, and it's one of those questions in my mind where the Bible school answer of Jesus doesn't necessarily help me figure that out, you know. I, I don't think we will, and I'm not going to take the time to tell you, I don't think we'll need it. You know, I, I just don't think we'll need the scripture. Jesus is the eternal living word. He is the incarnate word and he'll be there. We won't even need lights in heaven. So I don't I don't think we'd need it. But that's just one of those. I chased that trail for a while this week as I was thinking through this. Regardless, the word is eternal because it is as timeless as God is. It is eternal. Now, when we say the word as we have it in printed form, you know, these 66 books, we can talk about whether or not that book itself physically or whatever is eternal. That's not my point here. Here's what Peter said as he was quoting the prophet Isaiah, who he held to be the inspired word of God. He said, all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So it's, it, it, it's never out of date. It's never expired. Right? That new Geico commercial, expired, expired, expired. This guy's aunt has moved in to live with him, you know, and she's going. That won't happen with God's word. It's not expired. Psalm in verse 89 of Psalm 119, forever your Lord is, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your testimonies are righteous forever. 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And, and in our text today, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And the timelessness of that. It's what the writer of Hebrews says when he says that this God, this word that we have before us is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two edged sword. And it's piercing down to the division of our very soul and our spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's discerning our thoughts and our intentions. It's timeless. And it has discerned the thoughts and intentions of believers when the church was founded. It has discerned the thoughts and intentions and led believers throughout the ages. Cultures have changed, right? Languages have changed. Absolutely they have. Praise God, I believe translations have changed so that that word is made relevant and understandable to that particular culture. And as that change has happened, those timeless truths have remained steady. They've not expired. They're as relevant for me as they are for that tribe in Papua New Guinea. Many of whom, by the way, don't have the full Bible yet because it's not been translated into their language. They have bits and pieces of it. So the word is 
is authoritative, the word is inspired, the word is inerrant, the word is eternal. All of that comes from our passage today. All of that comes from all of the Psalms. All of that comes from all of the word. In the beginning, God said, our God is a speaking, revealing God. Praise him that he is. Or or else we would still be stumbling around in the darkness and the lostness. Our God speaks and he reveals himself. And he has chosen to do that. He's chosen to do that in general ways, what we call general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's God's general revelation. And Paul says in Romans that every human being ever born that ever draws breath is accountable for that general revelation. Because he says what can be known of God through that general revelation is the basics of his character. The understanding of who he is. And we're accountable for that. But God in his grace gave us more. What we call special revelation. And that special revelation is those visions, those words, those words that came from God to men. Those words that men uttered as God spoke those words into their hearts. That special revelation came. But the most... The most gracious, the fullest sense of that special revelation comes to us in Christ himself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word tabernacled, John 1 says. It it took up residence among us. So that all of these things are true, what, what difference does that make? Well, look at what we've seen throughout Psalm 119, what we see first even in this passage today. That when my heart is desperate... I can call out to God and know that he will answer. Look at look at what he says there. My whole heart, I cry with my whole heart in verse 145 in verse 146. I call you save. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. I call exclamation point. You save or say it's just one word with a pronoun. There's just a curtness to it. There's a a brevity to it. There's an urgency to it. I'm desperate, God. I call. You save. I call all the time. Look at verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. And, And then not only does he rise up early in the morning in verse 147 and 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. So they're in that darkest part of 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 the night. Before the dawn comes, he's awake, meditating on the word, crying out, hoping in the word. I'm I'm trusting you. Verse 149, hear my voice according to your steadfast love. So he's crying out, God, hear me. God, according to your justice, give me life, save me, help me. If I cannot trust this word, I cannot call out to it with any confidence or hope when I'm desperate. It's that simple to me. It may seem elementary to some, but, I mean, I have to hold to that. I have to hold to the parts of it that I may not understand if I'm going to hold to the part that says nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have to hold to all of it, or I can't hold to any of it. If I'm desperate when I cry out, when I'm facing opposition, look at what it says in verses 150 and 151. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. And and I love the contrast here. They are far from your law, but you are near. How is he near? 
He's near through his indwelling Holy Spirit, but he's near also through his word to us, through what he speaks to us, the word that's in our hearts, according to that new covenant. It's no longer written on tablets of stone. It's written on our hearts. And so I have the strength to face the opposition because, God, you are near. Your word is trustworthy. Your commandments are true. I know that. I know you are near because your word says you are near. And I'm going to trust that, even if I don't feel like it. Strength to face opposition. Look at what it says there in verse one, in 166. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. There's, there's discernment there. There's understanding. We've already seen this in the passage in, in other places. It said back in verse 66. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong reference. It was in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. That discernment causes him to make a judgment here. He says, I look at the faithless with disgust. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? That disgusts me. I look at those who are far away from you, God, who don't hold to your word. And there's a response there. There's a, there's a visceral response in this man, in this writer. Lord, you have given me your word. He's earlier in verse 66 asked that God would teach him good judgment and knowledge. And God, I know you can teach me that, he says, because I believe your word. So, okay, I'm trusting your word. I believe it's true. And I believe that through that word, you're going to teach me judgment and knowledge and going to give me the ability to know and understand and discern what is to be loved and what is to be cast off. What is to be held and what is to be let go. So, if the word can't be trusted then I can't trust the judgments that are made based on the Word. Does that make sense? Tell me what you're using as your standard so I can know whether or not I trust it. Discernment to recognize evil. And then in verse 157, uh, this one just struck my heart because of conversations that Susan and I often have and things that often happen when we're driving together. In verse 157 it says, Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I don't, that just is so clear to me. All right. My eyes, Lord, are on you. And so, you know, as we're driving along, sometimes I'll all of a sudden feel a hand on the wheel. I do. I feel a hand on the wheel. Because my eyes aren't looking at the road. My eyes are looking at that deer standing over there in the field. Or where I think a deer ought to be standing. So, um, or my eyes are just looking at the sunset. or looking. I'm, I'm, I'm easily distracted as I drive. I don't know if it's prophetic. Susan says one day we're just going to get killed in the car wreck. So if that ever happens, you can look back to November, the whatever it is here, and say, you know, Gerald said that was going to happen one day. Probably because I was not paying attention. The spiritual application of that illustration is I don't swerve when I'm persecuted. I don't let those things turn my attention away from your testimonies. And that's just a real simple illustration for me. Because I can see winding back and forth. Because I see winding back and forth through life for many of us. Something happens and we veer off. 
something happens and we turn aside. One of the rules of riding a bicycle on the road is that I'm, I'm leery when I see someone staring at me as they're driving because I tend to go toward what I look at. So if someone is staring at me when I'm riding, I'm very careful. I'm ready to ditch it in the ditch, okay? Because we turn toward what we look at. And he says, my eyes are on your testimonies, not my persecutors and not my adversaries. And so we just, this attitude toward the word is critical. I said this in an earlier sermon back from an earlier passage, but I remembered the quote and I went back. Here's what it says. God does not bless with discernment a negative attitude toward his word. If we trust that his words are the best counsel in the world, he will give us discernment. He'll give us knowledge. He'll give us understanding. I believe he'll give us strength. He'll give us direction. He'll give us discernment. He'll give us comfort. He'll give us hope when we ask. Because in faith, we have to believe that he's going to stand behind that word and that he's good for it. It's foundational. So think about that for just a second. Our when, when I need hope, when I need direction, when I need discernment, when I'm just not sure, this is where I can turn to find it. And it's foundational. And even sub-foundational to that, if you will, the rebar that's kind of running through this, is the attitude of humility. All flesh is grass. The flower withers, the grass fades, and the wind blows it away. But the word of the Lord is eternal. And that humility that recognizes that, Lord, I'm finite and I am sinful and I am prone to wonder. And God, I need, to, I, I need you to hold to me first so that I can then hold to your word. And the humility of recognizing that while God has revealed himself in his word, he has not revealed himself exhaustively in a way that I can understand it. I'll, one day I'll see him face to face and then I'll bang, I'll get it. But until then, his ways are not my ways. And his ways and his word is higher than, than my ways. And, and I need help of the Holy Spirit. I need, I need the, the, the help and the instruction and the cooperation of the body of Christ to, to grow in that word as I need to. And, and, I, and I just have to rely on that. i got to believe this word. I have to trust this word. And I have to hold to those promises. And as we hear them, and as we read them, and as we hold to them, and as we do them, then we are being equipped to be disciples in this world and go out and make a difference for the kingdom. Apart from that, it's not going to happen. It's amazing. I, public, I wrote something earlier this week, and it's just an amazing reality, if we'll think about it for just a second, that our God chooses to reveal himself. Just let that sink in. Our God chooses to reveal himself. And, and he's completely distinct from us. He is different in his essence from us. That's all that his holiness and his majesty and his transcendent, all of that boils into that fact that he is, he is so distinct and different from us, and yet he is gracious to make himself known, to reveal himself to us. And he's chosen to do that 
in a, in a special way through Jesus, the living word. And he's chosen to do that in a special revelation of his written word, of, of his spoken word to us. And I don't know about you, but I suspect that you are like me. I have a shelf full of these. There's boxes of these laying around this church. You may have a big one on your coffee table. I sold those one summer in Texas. So we, we have this, this book, we have this word, and, and it's easy for us to take it for granted, right? It's easy for us just to lose sight of how special this is, how significant it is. And, and while God has revealed himself generally, this special revelation that he's given to us First, think about it for just a second. Think about the revelation that he gave us in Jesus himself. The word made flesh. And that everything in this Bible points to him as the fulfillment of that. As the, as the epic center of it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Do not think, I'm in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And, and we saw that as we've gone through that one dot is a, is a Hebrew letter. And Jesus is saying not even the punctuation marks are going to pass away. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We talked about righteousness last week. And the righteousness that we are called to is revealed in this word. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But listen. Here's, here's what I posted. Here's what's astounding about that. And, and Michael Barrett wrote this. As gracious as God was to send his son. And, and he is that living word. He is that, he is that answer for us. And he says, as important as these mediums may be, God determined that his enduring permanent witness to himself should come through a written word, namely the scriptures, what we call the Bible. Even Christ ascended into the heavens after his resurrection from the dead. Scripture, however, is the Spirit's enduring, ever-present gift to God's people. The one through which the Spirit brings us into union with the resurrected and ascended Christ our Lord. Barrett says, we do not know Christ apart from the word of Christ inscripturated. There's a word for you. It is through this inspired text that the Spirit makes Christ known to us in a saving way. Danny Aiken says, if you are saved, you have been saved through the word. If you have not been saved through the word, you're not saved. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes through the word. So this book that God has graciously given to us points us to Jesus. And if we did not have this book that points us to Jesus, we wouldn't know who Jesus is. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have that gospel given for us. And so... It is so precious to us, or should be. So, 
here's, here's, here's kind of the one point of application, if you will. And I've made some other applications here. But here's a simple question. This is why I ask you in the beginning of the service to pick up a copy of the Bible and open it and read it. Because the question is, are we listening? God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the word. And are we listening? Are we hearing it? How well are we listening? Does he have my full attention? Am I separating myself from other mediums of communication, from other distractions? Am I separating myself from those so God in the room with me has my attention? Because when I open up this living word... And begin to read it. I'm hearing from God. And so. I don't discount for a second. How valuable a tool we have. When we can open our Bible app. On our phone or our laptop. Or open that Bible app on our iPad. Or wherever it may be. I don't discount for a second. That's that's a glorious tool. And I believe God is using it to reach people. That before have not been able to be reached. But I'm thinking right now, just specifically in our culture, for many of us, about distractions. Because I didn't just crawl out from underneath a rock today and recognize that if you're using your phone here in the service, you're not still getting notifications. Or that while it may not be turned up, you can get the text. And while I appreciate some of your posts in the middle of the Facebook broadcast, you know, your amens. And and I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying you can't focus as closely and as attentively, at least maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but if I'm trying to read the Bible and it vibrates or pings in my phone, it's going to take a rock solid determination to stay with what I'm doing and not. And even then I'm thinking about, well, I wonder what that was. Wonder who that might have been. So if I get a tweet, or if I get a notice that I've been pointed out on Instagram, or whatever it may be, so you know, am I going to let Mark Zuckerberg take precedence over Jesus? Hmm? I don't. Be careful. <laughs> I know knows the answer. That's the Jesus answer. <laughs> I know. I know that's the Bible school answer. I'm just saying. So I want to urge you. To pick up the book and open the pages. And that tool is a tool. Your phone, whatever else it may be that you have the Bible app. I use it all the time myself. But if my quiet time is coming off of that phone, then I've got, I got a lot of distractions. I've got a lot of things that are pinging for my attention. But when my Bible is open in front of me and my phone is someplace else then I believe I'm in a better place to read, hear, understand, and just internalize. Open this book, and with the Spirit leading me in reading it, I'm hearing from the living God. And I don't want to be distracted from that. Right? I don't. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you today for your written, revealed word to us. 
We thank you that the heavens declare your glory. We thank you, Lord, for general revelation that you've given us. That, Lord, we feel closer to you sometimes when we're out in nature or when we're observing art or when we're listening to music. God, you have graciously given us those things as a means of, uh, Lord, just revealing how awesome you are. But, God, you have given us your word that points us to Jesus, that reveals to us you in this beautiful, clear, complete way. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to hunger and thirst after it. Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. And you have given them to us, Lord, in this scripture. We thank you for the miracle of that. We thank you for the gift of that. We thank you, Lord, for the mission you've given us to take this word and to live it out and flesh it out and share it with people around us. Because in this word, Lord, is the gospel. And it points in and reveals Jesus. So, Lord, enable us to do that, I pray. Father, if, if there's someone that's never really trusted in Christ, I pray that they would pick up your word and start maybe in John or someplace and just let you, Lord, lead them to Jesus through that word. Help us to lead others to Christ through your word. And I pray that in his glorious name. Amen.